Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody, um, and welcome to uh, this afternoon's uh, IPR lecture. My name is Nick Pierce. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the University of Bath and Director of the Institute for uh, Policy Research. And I'm very uh, glad to be welcoming you all this afternoon um, to uh, a lecture from um, Professor Larry Bartels. Um, as I'm sure you all know, um, those of you coming on the call, listening to the event today, um, Professor Bartels is a, is a leading uh, scholar of political science uh, around the world. He holds the Mayworth and Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University. Um, and his scholarship and his teaching focus on public opinion, electoral politics, public policy and political representation. And uh, he's the author of some landmark texts in political science in recent years, in particular, Democracy for Realists with Christopher Arkin, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government, a challenge to uh, the folk theory of democracy, a challenge to many of the theories of representative democracy, which uh, which inform uh, many of our understandings in uh, uh, in societies like the UK and the US, and unequal democracy, the political economy of the new gilded age, drawing attention to the uh, the dominance of politics, or at least um, the influence in politics of the wealthy, the rich. Um, both of those published in 2016. Uh, and of course, he's the author of many other scholarly articles and contributions. Today, he's here to talk to us uh, about his new book, Democracy Erodes from the Top, uh, which um, takes on the idea that uh, populism, uh, the kinds of things we've seen in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the Brexit vote in the UK, um, the governments of Hungary and Poland and so on, uh, takes on the idea that those are formed out of a sort of groundswell of changes in views, attitudes, opinions amongst the public, and instead looks at it from uh, the perspective of political leaders, political elites, um, and the, if you like, the supply side of politics. So I'm not going to say any more about that because that's the subject of the lecture. I just will say that um, the event is being recorded. Um, it means that you'll be able to watch it on YouTube or listen to it again on a podcast later. If you have a question after the lecture, we're going to do a Q&A uh, with Professor Bartels in the time we have. And uh, so put your questions into the Q&A function. I'll then read those, collate them, uh, and put them to Professor Bartels. So you've got an opportunity to chip in, to contribute, and to ask questions. Um, and uh, and then at the end, I'll just let people have uh, details of how they can um, uh, get a reduction on the book itself. So I'll let you know that at the end. But that's enough from me. I'd like to hand over now to Professor Larry Bartels. Larry. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. I look forward to your questions. I'm going to try and share my screen here if I can. Uh, okay, so this is what I wanted to be the cover of the book. The press had other ideas, and so uh, let's see if I can advance. Sorry. There we go. This is uh, how the cover actually turned out. Um, as Professor Pierce suggested, most of my own work has been on the United States, uh, but I turned in recent years to Europe and have kind of an outsider's perspective on Europe. Most of what I 
thought I knew about what was going on was based on commentary in the press and uh, among public intellectuals about the so-called crisis of democracy. Uh, and so I just want to share with you a little bit of the expectations that I came to this project with. Um, a kind of common refrain was to hark back to the economic crisis of the 1930s and to think that the economic crisis that started in 2008 and 2009 was a kind of analog. It shouldn't be too surprising that the worst economic crisis since the 1930s has led to the worst political crisis within liberal democracies since the 1930s. Uh, another journalistic account, the Western democracies now seem in danger of collapsing as a backlash against globalization arouses angry opponents of immigration, free trade, and cultural tolerance. There are times in which everything changes all at once. Political newcomers storm the stage. Voters clamor for policies that were unthinkable until yesterday. Social tensions that had long simmered under the surface erupt into terrifying explosions. A system of government that had seemed immutable looks as though it might come apart. This is the kind of moment in which we now find ourselves. Something is happening. Anti-establishment, anti-system, anti-elite, populist sentiments are exploding in many mature democracies. Confidence in politicians, parties, parliaments, and governments is falling. Even the support for democracy as a system of government has weakened. But what I found looking at the data for myself over the last 20 years is that virtually none of that turns out to be true, at least insofar as we focus on public opinion and on the attitudes of Europeans. The opinions commonly implicated in this wave of right-wing populism and the crisis of democracy, things like anti-immigrant sentiment and opposition to European integration and distrust of politicians and parties and disaffection with the economy and with democracy have all remained stable or even improved over the last couple of decades across Europe. The data that I'm going to talk about are primarily from the European Social Surveys, a big cross-national academic project um, that surveyed over 350,000 people in 23 countries between 2002 and 2019. Um, you can see the list of countries there. Most of them have been surveyed nine times, so roughly every couple of years during this period although there are some that didn't participate in every survey. But what, what I want to do is to start just by summarizing shifts in key opinions in those countries over the period that I'm talking about. So here's one that has been quite important in the politics of a lot of countries in Europe recently, uh, attitudes toward immigrants and immigration. All of these attitudes are going to be measured on a scale running from zero to 10. So here, zero is the extreme anti-immigrant position. 10 is the extreme pro-immigrant position. The solid red line is the average for Europe as a whole. And then the lighter gray lines are the trends within individual countries that were surveyed nine times over this period. So you can get some sense of the cross-national variation as well as the overall story for Europe. Uh, on the whole, in most of these countries, attitudes toward immigrants are pretty moderate and have remained pretty much unchanged over this entire 
two decade period, if anything, there's been a increase in support for immigrants and immigration. Uh, the overall shift is something like four tenths of a point on this 10 point scale. Um, that mostly reflects the fact that in all of these countries, even the ones that are quite unfavorable toward immigrants, younger people tend to be more favorable. And so we've seen a process of generational change where the older, more anti-immigrant parts of the population have gradually aged out and been replaced by younger people. And so if anything, I think there's strong reason to think that this modest upward trend in support for immigrants and immigration is likely to continue in most parts of Europe in subsequent years. Uh, but again, no sign of an anti-immigrant wave here uh, almost anywhere in Europe. Support for European integration, kind of the same story. There was a dip in support during the Euro crisis uh, in 2012 and 2014. You can see some dip there, but then a recovery uh, to the point where now attitudes toward European integration are about as favorable across Europe as they've been at any point. It's also worth saying here that the countries where there have been significant declines in support for the European Union and European integration are mostly not the places that suffered most during the Euro crisis. So the idea that um, dissatisfaction with the European Union as a reaction to the failure of EU authorities to coordinate an adequate response to the European crisis doesn't seem to hold water. The places where uh, support for further European integration has actually declined are mostly places that got through the economic crisis pretty unscathed, but that have cultural frictions of one kind or another. They're mostly Eastern European countries that were in a kind of first wave of enthusiasm for the European Union when they originally joined at the beginning of this time series um, and then became less enchanted as time went on, but not for reasons that have to do with economic disaffection. Here's the trend in ideological polarization, another uh, possible trend that people have worried about as a kind of harbinger of democratic dysfunction. This is just thinking about the extent to which people in any particular country disagree ideologically, the distance between them on the ideological spectrum. You see that there was a increase in the immediate wake of the economic crisis, but then a kind of turning down again. And now the level is basically back to where it had been before the crisis. Trust in parliaments and politicians, kind of the same story, really no change overall, although some countries have uh, fluctuated. There were some declines in countries that were hard hit by the European crisis, but uh, basically those have all pretty much recovered by this point. And satisfaction with democracy, again, um, a little bit of ups and downs, but really no significant change over this entire period. So the idea that citizens in large numbers have turned against democracy uh, or become disaffected from democracy just doesn't seem to hold much water for Europe as a whole. But that raises a question, if public opinion is essentially unchanged in all these countries, what accounts for the huge wave of electoral support for right-wing populist parties that we've heard so much about, the so-called populist wave. One response to that question is just to notice that the wave itself is pretty exaggerated. 
Uh, if you look across Europe as a whole, the support for these right-wing populist parties has increased, but it's increased only pretty modestly by my tabulation uh, from something like 12 or 13 percent on average in a given election to something like 15 percent. That's, I think, uh, a pretty stark contrast with the popular impression, which is largely based on disproportionate media attention to instances in which particular right-wing populist parties have suddenly risen to prominence and flourished in particular elections in particular places. We see and hear much less about the many instances in which these right-wing populist parties then subsequently, subsequently uh, decline in their electoral support. So I think part of what's going on here is just a kind of optical illusion that's based on the impatient shift in focus uh, among journalists. The other thing to say about this populist support uh, is that the variation in actual voting for populist parties in different places reflects what I'll call variation in supply much more than variation in demand. What I mean by that is that the demand for right-wing populism, the level of populist sentiment in the population as a whole is really pretty unchanged as suggested by those graphs that I showed you about the unchanging levels of opposition to immigration in the European Union and distrust of political leaders and so on. And so uh, the way I put this is that right-wing populism is not a wave, but it's a reservoir. There's a substantial uh, fraction of voters in almost all political systems that are potential supporters of right-wing populist parties. And what fluctuates mostly from country to country and over time is the extent to which right-wing populist entrepreneurs succeed in mobilizing that potential support and turning it into actual votes. That has much more to do with their political skills and especially with the successes or failures of mainstream politicians in trying either to, uh, to keep out the right-wing populists and to hold on to the support of people who might otherwise turn to those parties, or on the other hand, their governing failures and scandals and so on, which create huge openings for new parties to come in and make inroads into the electorate. So I'm going to think about populist sentiment as being a combination of these specific attitudes that I've mostly already talked about. Um, the two most important are simply conservative ideology, where people put themselves on a left-right scale. Not surprisingly, people who put themselves on the right are more likely to support right-wing populist parties. Um, and then anti-immigrant sentiment, which plays a significant role in most, although not all of these cases of right-wing populist parties gaining support. And to a lesser extent, anti-EU sentiment and political distrust and dissatisfaction with democracy. Uh, surprisingly, very little weight attached here to economic disaffection. Looking across the 16 most prominent examples of right-wing populist parties in Europe, uh, there are relatively few cases in which economic disaffection was actually a significant factor uh, in their support. I should also say that across these 16 parties, there are some significant differences in the bases of their appeal. Uh, they have a kind of family resemblance, but they're certainly not at all 
uh, identical offerings in these different places. But the idea of populist sentiment is intended to summarize uh, the extent to which a typical right-wing populist party anywhere in Europe might find a basis in public opinion uh, to gain support in the elections. And the really striking thing is that if you look at the relationship between the level of right-wing populist sentiment in each country, which I've graphed here along the horizontal axis, excuse me, along the horizontal axis of this graph, uh, this is the average level of right-wing populist sentiment on my 10-point scale uh, between 2014 and 2019. You can see the country averages only range between four and six. So uh, in that sense, the average level of sentiment in most countries is pretty moderate. Um, but going up the vertical axis, you see the average vote share for right-wing populist parties in each of these countries over the same period. And you can see that there's virtually no relationship overall between the amount of populist sentiment and the success of right-wing populist parties. The variation in their support has much more to do with the details of how political elites have managed on one hand uh, the challenge of mobilizing populist supporters and on the other hand the challenge of trying to keep them in the fold of mainstream mostly conservative parties. Uh, so there's a huge amount of variation which has rather little to do with fluctuations in populist sentiment across these countries or for that matter over time. So here's a picture that tries to summarize that situation. Uh, the distribution here is the distribution of right-wing populist sentiment all across Europe on my zero to 10 scale. So on the far left, there are some people who are very unlikely to support populist parties. On the far right, people who are much more likely to support populist parties. And I'm showing here the distribution first of the eligible electorate, which is the large, the overall distribution. Uh, so you can look at the kind of tannish brown part there. Um, the gold yellow distribution beneath it is the subset of those people who actually voted in the most recent national election. And then the black distribution down at the bottom are the people who actually voted for right-wing populist parties in these countries. Uh, and so the good news here, I think, is that right-wing political entrepreneurs mostly haven't been very successful in mobilizing right-wing populist sentiment. You can see a lot of people, even pretty far over to the right side of the graph, uh, are not voting for right-wing populist parties. In some countries, that's because there hasn't been a right-wing populist party that's become viable to provide an alternative for them to support. Uh, but more often, it's just that these people are continuing to support more mainstream, mostly conservative parties, rather than the right-wing populist offerings um, that they have. And that's true even for people who are pretty high up in the distribution, pretty extreme in their right-wing populist sentiment. So that's the good news. The bad news is that these politicians haven't yet been very successful in mobilizing right-wing populist sentiment, which is to say, uh, at least potentially, there is a lot more uh, support out there for right-wing populism than has been tapped so far. And so it's possible at least to imagine a situation in which political entrepreneurs across Europe become significantly more successful than they have 
at actually mobilizing this support and translating it into votes and seats in parliament and uh, influence over the policymaking process. But let me turn now to the two cases that people often point to, or at least have in mind in the background when they think about the dangers, the threats of right-wing populism, which is the cases of Hungary and Poland, uh, both of which in recent years have seen right-wing populist authoritarian leaders uh, significantly erode democratic institutions and democratic procedures and engage in real uh, significant democratic backsliding. And I think in a lot of the discussion of right-wing populism in other parts of Europe, there's at least a uh, implicit suggestion that those countries are following the same path. So here's an example from Cohen Monk's uh, influential article on the democratic disconnect. Far-right populist parties have risen from obscurity to transform the party systems of virtually every Western European country. Meanwhile, parts of Central and Eastern Europe bear witness to the institutional and ideological transformations that might be afoot. In Poland and Hungary, populist strongmen have begun to put pressure on critical media to violate minority rights and to undermine key institutions such as independent courts. So I think both parts of that statement are true. Populist parties have made significant inroads in a lot of places, and Poland and Hungary have indeed uh, put pressure on rights and on democratic institutions. But notice the connection here between those two sets of events. It's the word meanwhile. Uh, so there's an implication that there's some causal connection or some story that ties these two cases to the broader phenomenon of right-wing populism, but no detailed demonstration of that connection. And so what I did was to think about what had actually happened in Hungary and Poland and the extent to which it fit the kind of common narrative of a right-wing populist wave. Here's just the kind of picture uh, in summary of what's happened to democracy in those two places as summarized by a scale of kind of the quality of liberal democracy in different countries uh, as measured by the VDEM project. These are assessments of experts on the politics of different countries rating how well they you know, meet the standards of liberal democracy. And up at the top, the top dotted line is a kind of summary of high functioning democratic systems in Europe like France and Germany and Sweden. Um, the middle dotted line is kind of marginal or mildly authoritarian countries like Albania and Bulgaria and Romania. And then down at the bottom are real authoritarian countries, countries where democracy um, is basically absent, uh, like Russia. And you can see that what's happened in Hungary and Poland over time is that they've moved from pretty high functioning democratic systems, at least by the assessments of these outside experts, uh, to something more like the middle case, to mildly authoritarian cases. And those shifts happened pretty suddenly following the election of right-wing populist leaders uh, in Hungary in 2010, Viktor Orban and the Fidesz party, and then in 2015 in Poland, the Law and Justice Party. Um, and so I think it's important to think about what happened in those cases and how it relates to the overall phenomenon of right-wing populism. So what I did was to turn to the survey data from those two countries 
and to look particularly at the support for those parties in the elections just before they succeeded in winning power. And the really striking finding is that there is virtually no relationship between the bases of their support and the bases of support for right-wing populist parties in other parts of Europe. If you look at things like anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-EU sentiment, they were virtually unrelated to support for Fidesz before the election in which they took power, and similarly in Poland for law and justice. Um, as best one can tell from reading about the campaigns and looking at the survey data, these were pretty conventional mainstream conservative parties that got elected primarily because the incumbent parties failed spectacularly, and they were the obvious alternative parties for people to support. In the case of Hungary, there had been a huge scandal in which the incumbent party leader had been taped talking to a party meeting about how they had duped the voters into supporting them and gotten away with these uh, remarkable lies about what they were going to do in the state of the country. That spurred demonstrations and a huge rise in opposition over a period of years. But as was the main opposition party uh, that was in position to benefit from that dissatisfaction with the incumbent party. Uh, they won 53% of the popular vote, which was hardly a huge landslide given the political circumstances. But given the electoral system in Hungary, that 53% of the popular vote translated into exactly a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly, which given the party loyalty within Fidesz, which was quite extreme, uh, given the internal party institutions, was enough to modify the constitution and crack down on judges and change the electoral system to benefit themselves and so on. So this was a decision to entrench themselves in power that was not uh, pushed from the bottom to the top, but rather a top-down phenomenon entirely. And they rationalized it after the fact by referring to a voting booth revolution, but ordinary voters really had very little to do with it. Then after the fact, in order to try and entrench themselves in power, in addition to fiddling with the electoral system, uh, Orban began to turn to some of the rhetoric that had been successful for other right-wing populist parties uh, in order to try to build support. So uh, they did aggressively uh, scapegoat immigrants and scapegoat the European Union and so on. And so over time, those elements became a more important part of the basis for their support, but that was all after the fact. Uh, this was a case of democracy eroding from the top uh, rather than from the bottom. And similarly in Poland, you see much the same kind of story. Um, another important factor in how these parties have been able to maintain themselves in power thereafter is that there are really remarkable uh, shifts in people's assessment of how things are going in these countries. So let me just show you some of the survey data from Hungary and Poland comparing in the first column in each case, uh, people's assessments of how things were going just before uh, the right-wing populist parties were voted into power. And then in the most recent surveys in 2018 and 2019, if you look at satisfaction with the national economy in both countries, there's been a huge improvement in people's assessments of how the economy is going um, under 
but as in Hungary and under the Law and Justice Party in Poland, satisfaction with the government has increased hugely. Remember, if you think back to the original graphs that I showed you in most of these countries, a shift of half a point would be a substantial shift. Here we're seeing shifts of two or three points uh, over a relatively short period of time. Trust in parliament and politicians has increased substantially in both these countries. And ironically, satisfaction with democracy is uh, a good deal higher in both places than it was uh, before democracy began to erode by the standards of outside political observers. Uh, in Hungary, we even see a substantial increase in people's overall satisfaction with their lives, which is a very stable measure in most countries over long periods of time. So that shift is pretty remarkable. Uh, in Poland, we don't see that, but we do see a substantial increase in their assessment of the quality of health services and education. So these seem to be instances in which the uh, authoritarian leaders succeeded not only by appealing to people's sense of national identity and their desire to recreate a perhaps mythical uh, kind of independent national existence in a traditional uh, national culture and identity, uh, but also just improvements in their day to day lives. And I think that's consistent with what we've seen in lots of instances of ordinary citizens accommodating themselves either to mildly authoritarian regimes of the sort that we see here, or even to full scale dictatorships. So I wanna turn back here to an important book by Nancy Bermeo, uh, who is at Oxford and uh, is uh, at Princeton now called Ordinary People in Extraordinary Times. She looked at dozens of cases of full blown breakdowns of democracy in 20th century Europe and Latin America and tried to understand the role of citizens in the process of democratic breakdown. And here are just a couple quotations that summarize her findings. The culpability for democracy's demise lay overwhelmingly with political elites. In the vast majority of cases, voters did not choose dictatorship at the ballot box. I think that's true of Hungary and Poland as well. They chose what they thought were pretty mainstream opposition parties in situations of political crisis uh, and found out only later that they were getting these mildly authoritarian regimes. Bermeo also says, ordinary people generally were guilty of remaining passive, while they generally did not polarize and mobilize in support of dictatorship, they did not immediately mobilize in defense of democracy either. And again, I think this fits well with the stories of what happened in Hungary and Poland. There has been significant opposition to both of those regimes, but they managed to maintain power mostly because a lot of ordinary citizens were willing to accept democratic backsliding and some uh, erosion of democratic institutions and procedures in exchange for improvements in the quality of their daily life and validation of their national identities and their sense of themselves. Before we go too far in castigating them for doing that, I think we should probably think about the extent to which that would be likely to happen in any democratic society. There's been a wave of research lately on the extent to which people in different societies value democratic procedures and institutions 
And the basic story, this has been true in research in the US going back for decades, but uh, we have better data now from a wider range of countries. The basic story is that people are very supportive of democracy in the abstract, but are pretty willing to um, sacrifice particular democratic institutions or procedures in situations where that seems important to protect their cherished substantive political values. So for example, if you offer people in surveys the choice between supporting a candidate of their own party or ideology who is fiddling with the electoral system in order to advantage their own party, or choosing somebody who is supportive of democratic norms and institutions, uh, but holds very different political values, uh, the vast majority of people are gonna support their own party and their own substantive political values over those uh, democratic norms. And at some level, I think we would say that, uh, you know, for most people in some situations, that's probably the right thing to do. I suspect none of us probably would argue for valuing every democratic procedure and norm over any uh, possible political value. So it's a world with complicated trade-offs and perhaps understandably most ordinary citizens make those trade-offs in ways that aren't entirely satisfactory or appealing to democratic theorists. So this brings me to a kind of general lesson um, that one of the problems here is about our understanding of democracy. Uh, we have a tendency to think of democracy as a bottom-up process. Uh, Prisakin and I referred to that in Democracy for Realists as the folk theory of democracy, as Professor Pierce mentioned. Uh, and the idea is that in democratic systems, public opinion, the views of ordinary citizens must somehow be animating whatever is happening. So if immigration is tearing Europe apart, it must be because anti-immigrant attitudes are on the rise. But we see that immigration is, at least in particular times and places, creating significant frictions in parts of Europe. But it's not because anti-immigrant attitudes are on the rise, but rather because a small set of anti-immigrant activists have managed to get attention. And in some of these countries, at least, mainstream leaders have panicked and uh, catered to those views probably much more than they actually needed to. If populist parties are winning more seats in parliament, it must be because populist sentiments are exploding. But we've seen that they're not exploding. Uh, the variation in parties winning seats in parliaments has much more to do with what's going on at the elite level. And if democracy erodes, it must be because support for democracy as a system of government has weakened. But as we've seen, support for democracy as a system of government really hasn't weakened. And to the extent that democracy has eroded, it's been because of the choices of political leaders rather than uh, the choices of ordinary citizens for the most part. So there's a kind of summary quotation here, which actually comes from a influential political scientist who was writing uh, about 60 years ago, our understanding of democratic politics is essentially simplistic based on a tremendously exaggerated notion of the immediacy and urgency of the connection of a public opinion and events. And going back even farther, uh, almost a century, uh, to the political analyst Walter Lippmann, there are, I believe, immense confusions in the current theory of democracy 
which frustrate and pervert its action. I have attacked certain of the confusions with no conviction except that a false philosophy tends to stereotype thought against the lessons of experience. I do not know what the lessons will be when we have learned to think of public opinion as it is and not as the fictitious power we have assumed it to be. So here we are almost a century later and I can say that I too uh, am unsure what the lessons will be of understanding public opinion in this less exalted, less fictitious form. But I think what we need is an understanding of democracy and maybe more ambitiously a theory of democracy that puts centrally uh, in the story the leadership of democratic leaders and the decisions that they make uh, to support or to uh, erode democratic procedures and values and institutions. So I think we learn have to learn to understand and accept that the real story here, the real story of democratic politics and its dangers uh, is really not primarily a story about ordinary citizens, but a story about political leaders. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, um, Professor Bartels. It's a fa fantastically interesting presentation and uh, really upends the story um, for many people of the rise of populism in recent years or the success of populist parties. Um, uh, although one can see how intellectually consistent it is with your with your previous work, certainly uh, um, democracy for realists. Um, we've we've got some questions, but before we go to those, I, I, I wonder if I might just tease out a few things um, uh, in your presentation and, and relate them to some of the sorts of debates in political science, uh, just for our our audience a little more. Um, one is uh, that um, you know there are sort of one of the main accounts of populism is that it's a cultural backlash, that it's an older generations responding to the sort of social liberalism, increasing social liberalism of society. So I'm thinking of hearing Pippa Norris and Ronald Inglehart's work, that if you disaggregate your ESS data uh, and you look at age cohorts, that you might find, and do in, in their account certainly, you find a stronger support for anti-immigrant sentiments, certainly, and some more support for populists amongst older groups. Uh, and conversely, that younger people less likely to support, and in particular, higher educated young people less likely to support. Um, so the cleavage is either about values and age, or it's about sort of education or not education. Uh, and that those are real drivers of support for or opposition to populist parties. I wonder if you might just sort of just um, take us through how you would respond to that account. Um, I think most of that is largely true in the current political climate. I think a lot of the kind of most important bases of disaffection uh, with the political system have to do with this sense of social change out of control. Certainly in the US, the people who are most intensely supportive of populism are uh, on the whole people who hark back to a kind of romanticized traditional view of what American society and culture were, uh, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly a much less diverse society, but certainly one in which there's been 
much less cultural and social change than we've experienced. And the intensity of those feelings, I think, does have to do with a sense of being on the losing side of history and a kind of sense of dis desperation. Uh, but I think that's just one instance of this broader phenomenon that in any democratic system, there are likely to be large numbers of people who are unhappy or disaffected for one reason or another. If you can point to particular instances in which that's not the case, uh, they're likely to be relatively short-lived historical special cases of one kind or another. For example, in the US and some parts at least of Europe after World War II, there was a kind of brief shining moment in which there was a good deal of social solidarity and optimism about the future. But I think those are special cases and not ones with that we should imagine as being kind of the ordinary state of democratic politics. So um, mm. I think leaving aside the specifics of who the particular people are who are disaffected and on what grounds they're disaffected in any particular era or any particular country or set of countries, uh, the underlying pattern here is likely to be uh, more broadly applicable. Okay, so so I, I suppose one comeback to that is that the sort of um, there is more um, sociological underpinning that is, is visible in uh, political divisions, particularly in European countries, than that sort of sort of relatively stable, some fluctuation below the stability picture that you you paint. So, for example, in you know, Hungary and Poland, the more liberal, educated, younger populations of Budapest uh, not supporting Orban, uh, ditto Warsaw. Um, and in the UK, you know, it's uh, London that votes remain. It's the post-industrial towns and the rural areas that vote Brexit um, and so on, which appears to indicate that there's something more than the sort of usual flux in uh, political um, contest and conflict, that there is something more deeply or at least, you know, sociologically explicable in some of those divisions? Um, yeah, I think we can delve into the sociological bases of any set of attitudes that we observe having a significant political impact. What I've tried to do here, since I'm working across countries, is to focus on the attitudes that are captured in the surveys that are more proximate to support for these parties, because I think the underlying sociological bases, although they do have some commonalities across times and places, are likely to be more variable and less clear. So um, I'm leaving aside the question of where these attitudes come from, but simply showing that they're not shifting very much over time or um, it's hard to point to many countries in which the the attitudes themselves are a crisis, absent the success of particular entrepreneurs in mobilizing them and capitalizing on the vulnerabilities in a system that are created by the failings of mainstream political leaders. Yeah, yeah. Well, before I come to the questions, I just to sort of follow up to that. Then one final follow up, which is, um, you know, one of the other arguments is that. Um, uh, and it's particularly true in a system like the UK's first past the post is is that the sort of support for these parties and their ability to shift politics um, isn't really a matter simply of 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 how many people vote for them proportionally electorate and whether they get MPs or not, 
um, it's their influence on the mainstream parties is that they drag them across to the right, either in coalitioning, you know, in proportional systems or in the case of something like the UK to make the mainstream centre right conservative party uh, more recognisably populist or even far right. Um, and ditto with the left, the Scandinavian left, for example, becoming um, much more um, hardline, hostile to immigration uh, as a consequence of support for parties like the Swedish Democrats and others. And so perhaps so I suppose you you might reply to that by saying, well, that's again, just that's a function of elite politics. The, the, the mainstream parties are responding to the sort of the sort of supply side challenge and doing so in, in ways that they they don't need to do. If you look at the real you know circumstances of the electorate, would that be your kind of reply or would you say, um, no, actually, you know, uh, there are real reasons why centre left parties and centre right parties worry about loss of support and therefore shift their their stances, their discourses, their search for appeal. Well, I think different institutions matter in terms of shaping the vulnerabilities of the systems and the way that these right-wing populist parties can achieve influence. I think UKIP is a pretty spectacular example of a party that, first of all, got more electoral support than it probably deserved because of the vast exaggeration of press attention that they got when they had a little bit of success. But Secondly, and even more spectacularly, an example of mainstream leaders panicking in the face of a threat that they could have dealt with much better. I think mainstream leaders mostly can't afford to entirely shut out right-wing populist parties. So in Sweden, for example, there's an interesting case where the mainstream parties have been very successful over a long period of time in shutting the Sweden Democrats out of influence in parliament. And one of these surveys that I looked at happened to be conducted in the months immediately following an election where the negotiations were going on by which they would once again shut the Sweden Democrats out of having any influence in parliament. And you could see in the responses of the voters who supported Sweden Democrats, a substantial decline in satisfaction with democracy and trust in politicians, even over that series of months as they saw that their voices were once again being shut out of the system. So I think there are dangers on that side as well, but what mainstream politicians have to do is to manage these tensions as best they can, uh, trying to minimize the influence of extremist elements uh, without shutting them out in ways that actually exacerbate the situation by inflaming their supporters. But another example of institutional vulnerability that I want to turn to is the case of the US, which is, uh, you know, like Britain, a majoritarian system and one in which you might think that right wing populists in order to have influence would have to, uh, you know, start a third party that then influenced a mainstream party. But that's not what happened here, obviously. Donald Trump simply took over the Republican Party. Why was he able to do that? He didn't at the time that he won the nomination, I think, have an absolute majority of support even among Republican primary voters. But the primary election system is one in which a candidate with strong factional support can prevail against a divided mainstream opposition uh, because he can win a sequence of primaries in different states and 
build up delegates while his opponents are still squabbling against each other. Um, and that's simply a function of having this wacky system that we have because we think it sounds more democratic to let the voters pick the candidates. Uh, but it's a kind of misshapen democracy that actually creates a huge vulnerability in the system as a whole. So somebody like Trump in 2016 and perhaps somebody like Trump in 2024 can win the nomination uh, and then at least be a significant threat in the general election, if not actually win it, simply on the strength of party loyalties among Republicans who probably wouldn't support him if they had a straight up or down choice between him and some other mainstream Republican candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, yeah, the parallel to the UK there where the um, Conservative Party prime minister or leader is chosen by tens of thousands of members who are completely unrepresentative of the wider population, or at least of the of the centre right. Um, can I just pick up on the point you made about the sort of influence of the media? Because a number of our questions um, refer to that, um, that, you know, UKIP and others in, you mentioned this in, in other country contexts too, that the, the media over uh, exaggerates support, tends to then intensify um, uh, the kind of visibility of the, of uh, of uh, populist parties, and uh, and and that may be also true of the social media too. I mean, do you think there's a, a big role in your story for the media, both traditional and social? Um, I suspect that there is. It's kind of hard to measure to measure systematically. Uh, I've mentioned UKIP because there is an interesting, pretty rigorous study of UKIP that looked over time yeah. at the relationship between how much support they had and how much media attention they had, and showed, uh, I think, pretty persuasively that uh, the media attention was driving the support more than the support was driving the media attention. We don't have that detailed kind of study for most of these places. And I think we know even less systematically about social media and its impact, but it certainly seems plausible that social media helps these right-wing populist movements and maybe especially the most extreme elements within them to find each other and organize and mobilize in ways that then can be more dangerous to the system than they would be otherwise. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, the first question we had was, um, was just, just about the fact your data from the ESS goes up to 2019, the wave, 2019 wave. Um, are there any sort of consequences, do you think, of the pandemic and the sort of sense that certainly that kind of um, the pandemic seemed to bring various populist grievances together um, uh, you know, it, it certainly sort of uh, at, at the worst end of it in kind of conspiracy theories about um, what had caused COVID and what the state was doing in its pandemic responses. Do you think there's any anything, in, you know, if, if just thinking about um, elections since the pandemic and political shifts since the pandemic, do you think the pandemic has had any kind of magnifying effect in some of these areas or, or not? Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is that my analysis stopped with 2019 because one of the effects of the pandemic was to suspend these surveys. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's a, a gap in the data. Yeah. Um, but my impression just from the survey data that do exist is that the effect of the pandemic has been kind of like the effect of the Euro crisis in places that were especially hard hit. There's mm -hmm. been a temporary shift in opinion, uh, dissatisfaction with the incumbents, uh, for example. Um, my guess is that that's likely to be short-lived as the effects of the pandemic wear off in these different places. Maybe the most interesting example is the impact on 
the EU. Uh, there was a lot of criticism of the EU's handling of the Euro crisis, their failure to coordinate and respond effectively. And a lot of people imagine that that was a source of um, you know, threat to the existence of the European Union going forward, or certainly to further European integration. But in fact, um, dissatisfaction with the EU was pretty mild, even in the worst of the Euro crisis. Most people had more confidence in the European Union than they did in their own national governments. Um, and I think similarly here, the response of the EU to the pandemic was in some ways pretty unsuccessful. Um, and there was talk that that would be a, you know, another threat to the very existence of the European Union. But if you look behind the top numbers in the surveys, it looks as though most people were dissatisfied that the European Union wasn't sufficiently powerful to deal with the crisis. And what they wanted was not an end to union, but rather further integration that would make the EU more effective in dealing with crises like this one. Um, and one of the impacts of the crisis was that the EU did take another significant step toward further integration by issuing bonds for the first time that were backed collectively by Europe rather than by individual countries and using those funds to support uh, aid to the countries that were hardest hit. So I think the European Union, if anything, probably has come out of the pandemic stronger, both organizationally and politically than it was before, um, kind of another instance of failing forward, as one set of scholars put it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and very limited evidence that any other countries want to follow the path of leaving the European Union, um, as the UK has done. Um, there's, there's a question um, uh, just about the sort of impact of all this on the left. So we talked a little bit about the impact on centre-right parties, mainstream centre-right parties, and um, but also this sort of tension between uh, resisting and not responding to the kind of um, challenger parties from the right, but also at the same time being responsive enough to indicate to electorates that their concerns are being heard and that their issues are being dealt with. And uh, you know, there is this both an academic and a political debate about the centre-left and the left that, um, you know, on the one hand, that it should... Uh, it, it should not seek to shift onto issues that have been uh, brought up the agenda by the populist and far right. So the kind of Kasmuda uh, view that um, uh, uh, that way lies lies defeat for social democratic and centre left parties that they need to uh, stay on uh, their own issues and in particular on questions of the economy and questions of uh, equality uh, and so on and so forth and a view perhaps that people uh, have expressed about the Biden administration, that it has been successful by, or at least um, has responded in a way that appears to be successful politically thus far, by uh, focusing on people's, um, what, you know, checkbook issues, real wages, jobs of the future, investments in industrial policy, manufacturing, and so on, um, and that it's there and not in uh, culture wars or arguments about immigration that uh, parties of the centre and the centre-left and the left uh, should be focused. I mean, can, can you say a little bit about how your thesis might sort of, what lessons it might have for that discussion? I guess I would say that it seems to me that political leaders in most instances have a lot of leeway to talk about the issues that they want to talk about and to try to suppress the issues that they don't want to talk about. If you think about 
the issue of immigration, for example, both in Europe and in the US, uh, there was a pretty successful record of mainstream parties on both the left and the right suppressing or ignoring the issue of immigration for quite a long time. Um, when it finally did break through, uh, they responded, and I think in some instances uh, overreacted the fact that that issue was now on the agenda. But it is a difficult kind of thing to manage. I mean, if you think about this in the broad spectrum, if something like 25% of the electorate in most of these European countries are, um, you know, roughly speaking, pretty strong and right-wing populist sentiment, it seems a little odd to think that a democratic system should be able to succeed forever, ignoring entirely the preferences and concerns of those people. So we're always juggling the idea of democracy as a system that reflects people's views. And on the other hand, democracy as a system that we, given our own political values, think is doing right. And I think a lot of the kind of academic and intellectual commentary on democratic politics, which is mostly nested uh, on the left of the political spectrum, tends to take for granted the idea that a well-functioning political system will produce left-wing governments and left-wing policies on a consistent basis. I just don't see any reason to think that's true. Yeah, okay, that's a, that's a very good, um... Well, uh, perhaps a realist note to end on for for people that um, uh, of that inclination, as you say, it's a very um, uh, good place for us to, I think, perhaps to sort of a note, that note of realism to bring the conversation to a close and to say, well, thank you very much indeed, Professor Bartels, for joining us um, uh, this afternoon, this evening in 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 the UK, um, speaking to us from the US. Uh, it's very good of you to have given us your time and to have answered all the questions and discussion um, so comprehensively and, and thoroughly. We're very grateful to you. I want to Thank say you. to everybody on the call, everybody on the lecture, that um, Professor Bartels' book uh, is available from Princeton uh, Press uh, at press.princeton.edu, E-D-U. Um, and if you use the code BAR30, BAR30, uh, you can save 30% on the print edition. So uh, you can get a substantial reduction on the book itself. And um, we'll certainly be ordering it for our library at Bath and uh, for our um, for the studies that we undertake on politics and public policy at the university. So again, thank you very much, Professor Bartels. We're very grateful to you for joining us today. Uh, and thank you to everybody for joining us. And just one final uh, advertorial, which is to say, um, we're coming to the close of a, a series of lectures this year, which we've talked about in terms of the polycrisis uh, we've got a couple more coming up before the end of uh, the summer, so please do keep an eye on the uh, IPR website at Bath for um, details of those events, sign up to our newsletter, all those sorts of things, follow our social media, um, and you can listen to this uh, event again, you can listen to Professor Bartels' uh, lecture and the Q&A again, uh, shortly we'll be putting it up on YouTube and a podcast, so if you want to go back and listen and look again at some of the things that have been said and discussed, you can do so. So thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you to Professor Bartels. Uh, a good evening to you.